And now, and now, the best of Pete Price. The best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7. I am knackered tonight, so I decided to ask Brendan. I knew it would work well that if he came tonight, then I wouldn't have any problems, you see. So simple as that. <laughs> Mrs. Brown, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's nice that the entourage is getting you just get a, You just get everywhere. You turn up on TV in London, and then next minute you're in radio in Liverpool. How do you do it? And according to you, I am playing the part of Pamela Anderson's breast. Yes, the middle one. Yes. You'll know which one it is. It'll be the smallest one. <laughs> <laughs> is she playing your genie? Uh, she's not playing my genie. I'm the emperor. Oh, you're, oh I, I thought, you, I thought you'd be you, the lamp. You might I've get got, a rub. No, no, no. I'm not getting a rub. I'm getting... I'm getting... Shut up. I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to watch it tonight. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he's back in the empire and doing a storm. Thank as God. As ever, ever, ever. You wouldn't think there was a recession on. When you come to a theatre, you would not think there was a recession on. No, it's going great now, thank God. That's fantastic. God bless Liverpool. Yeah. That's all I'd say. What do you, you feel when you come back? Honest, honestly, because particularly this year more than anywhere else, because we've we've been to the stage and we've been to Canada and we've been up and doing the TV series. That it really felt this is our first gig back doing live gigs this year, and it really felt certainly in the opening. I got that feeling of it's like coming home. It's really like coming home. It really was that buzz in the audience, and it feels very familiar. It's 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 super. Yeah. Liverpool's been really really good to us. I started here. Yeah, when we did the UK and, and, and we got support in Liverpool when we couldn't, you know, pull a crowd anywhere else and Liverpool was packed. So there's times, there's all times in your life when you're doing a gig, um, particularly as a performer, that, you know, you're going along and you're, you're going into gigs and you're not getting a crowd and you're thinking, am I wasting my time here? And as that was happening to us with the play, you know, you might get a run of four or five weeks when you had bad crowds for the week. Liverpool would always pop up as the next gig and you arrive in Liverpool and you just go, no, 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 we're right, we're right. And Liverpool would always, it always regen, re, rejuvenate you. Um, and it's ironic, uh, the, the toys with Liverpool are enormous for us. I mean, as I said, the first time we played in, G- in Great Britain, the first time that anybody from the BBC saw us, and they saw us in the Empire uh, in Liverpool. When they came to film it, uh, a year later, they wanted to film it in the Empire in Liverpool. And the piece that's on YouTube, uh, if you go on YouTube and look up Mrs. Brown's Boys, you'll see us uh, from, from the, and the and the comments from the crowd in the street afterwards mm. are, uh, are just are just amazing. So without any shadow of a doubt, we have a TV series on BBC One and we're delighted with that. But I have Which no, we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, but, but what I'm saying to you is that I, yeah. I have no doubt of the role yeah. that the people of Liverpool played in that. Tell me, um, you're a bit... It's really unusual because I... When I think about you, <clears throat> and I you see do often a lot. Are you going to slap him or are I going to slap him? <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, what I was going to say was there were stars in England years ago. Dustin G was a star. Uh, the Grumbleweed were stars. Then mm. Can, um, um, yeah, Can Cannonball, Ball, yeah. yeah. But these were stars who grew in the clubs without television. Mrs. Brown's done that, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been kind of like that. Every, a lot of people, because I, I I'm not aware of the club situation in, in the UK and I wouldn't have been familiar with it, but a lot of people have said that that reminds them of that, that, that um, we plugged away and plugged away and plugged away and plugged away, that we were, it, it was nearly a question. We didn't knock at the door of the BBC. And actually, thank God, um, we got to the point where, thanks to the, the internet and YouTube and, and, and gigs like Liverpool, the gig got so popular that by the time the BBC said, would you do a, a sitcom, we kind of had to think about it. We had to go, well, do, do we want to, you know, because we're, we're, we're quite busy. We're, you know, we're, we're going like the clappers. Um, it was nice to be like that. It wasn't, we were banging on, the, we weren't banging on the door, thank God. 
Um, but it was a lot of people said to me, "Oh, this reminds me of of the way you guys have been working, like the way people used to work the clubs." But all the clubs gone now? Were they gone? Well, they have gone. But it is interesting <clears throat> that Mrs. Brown crept out. You know, one night. I wore them out. One night, and all of a sudden, the whole of the city is talking about it. Mm. Glasgow's it's 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 that it's the weirdest thing, and there's nobody you, else doing that. Well, uh, do you know what I always found I, when I was we used to work in the hotel business. I'd see an ad in the paper, say, for a film or, or a play or whatever that was on, or a comedian that might be coming to town. And I used to, I'd look at it and go, oh, I must go and see that. And then I wouldn't. But if somebody came into work and said, I went to see this thing, you've got to go and see it, I'd definitely go. Mm. There's no doubt that uh, word of mouth is the most powerful way of spreading anything. <clears throat> and that's what they did here. People bringing people and people taking people and people um, spreading the word. And, and it worked. Mm. For those people who haven't a clue who Mrs. Brown is, because mm. there must be some people out there who've got a lot of new listeners since you come here last three, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, one's not well, two tonight. <laughs> the other one's not well either, so <laughs> probably got no new bloody I don't even know why I said that. No, for people who don't know Mrs. Brown, tell, tell us the, 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 the story behind it. started as a, uh, as a five-minute piece on radio. Um, I was working... Uh, radio was my first love. I, I love radio. Um, particularly doing drama on radio and comedy on radio because the pictures are better. And I was brought in by this afternoon DJ in RTE in Dublin. He had an afternoon show and he kind of a bit sippy, Steve Wright in the afternoon style show. And he liked to do quirky things. And one of the things he did was he'd, he'd invite um, C-list celebrities in, uh, like myself, to do little, um, read out little items out of things like the National Enquirer or the Globe, American papers, you know, little you know, dwarf rapes, no one escapes and UFO and all that shit. So um, I went in to do it and I was just reading through it and I said, these aren't funny. And he said, well, do you think you can be funnier than that? I said, I know I can. So I turned him, we were recording it. He was going to use it in the afternoon. So I flipped off the paper, said, run the mic there. And I, he ran the mic and I ran off a couple of one-liners or whatever. And I was on the floor laughing, he loved it. Um, so when we finished, he said, do you want to have a, have a coffee? Um, he said, yeah. And Rory was with me at the time because Rory was looking after me and, and uh, looking after press and public relations as well. And Rory, you had got me the gig on the radio. That's right, yeah, because I knew Gareth and that's how it he happened. Knew, yeah. That's right, he knew Gareth, so that's how he got me in. So we went up for a cup of coffee and the trays were sitting there and Gareth, he, he said, I'm looking for something quirky for the afternoon. And just thinking on my feet, literally spoofing, I said, I'm writing something at the moment uh, that's for radio, a five-minute comedy drama, just five-minute soap to run five days a week. And Gareth said, are you? And Rory said, Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the DJ said to me, "So what's it called?" And Rory went, "Yeah, what's it called?" <laughs> and I swear to God, I don't know where I came, uh, came out of the ether. I just out of my mouth came, "Mrs. Brown's boys." And I said, well, "What's it about?" I said, "It's about." And I start waffling. It's about this widow. She's sixty odd, and she's five, six grown-up kids, and she treats them like they're five, and one of them wants to be on the missions, and the other one. And I just start waffling. And he said, oh, I'd love to see the first And you have no idea where this came Absolutely from. no idea. And I'm, I'm spoofing just to try and get a gig. He said, I'd love to see the first few episodes. And Rory said, so would I. <laughs> <laughs> so over that... <coughs> over that Being follow, supportive that he yes, is. Yes, as he is. So that was on a Thursday. So over the Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I wrote 10 five-minute episodes. So let me stop you there. When you started writing them, did you feel Mrs. Brown? Did you... F- no, no, I wasn't even going to be Mrs. Brown. Oh, right. I wrote it and I was going to get... I, 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 over that weekend, I booked the studio for the Tuesday, uh, the following Tuesday. I wrote them over the weekend. I booked a few actors and an actress to play Mrs. Brown. 
and we got to the studio that day. Now I wasn't paying huge money; it wasn't big money I was paying, but I was I was financing it. And uh, we got the studio scripts ready and everybody uh, everybody there, and the actress didn't turn up. The actress who was supposed to play Mrs. Brown, she didn't show. So what happened was she thought it was the Wednesday, so she 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 thought she was in the next day. <clears throat> so I thought, well, what are we going to do? So I thought, what I'll do is I'll do her lines, and then when we go into the edit. I can leave the gap, and when we record her that week, we can put her voice in there. So I'm doing her lines, and I'm going, hello, hello, come in, son, sit down, and I'm doing all that. And when we got to the edit, the guy who's doing the edit, John, do you know an Irish singer called Johnny McAvoy? Uh, the name. Yeah, big name at home he was. His son, Jonathan, was doing the edit, and Jonathan was doing the edit, and he, he, when he heard Mrs. Brown, he, me doing Mrs. Brown, he said, oh, he said, who's the actress doing Mrs. Brown? She's really good. I said, that's me. I said, no way. I said, yeah. I said, Brendan, you have to keep that voice. She's great. And that's how I ended up being Mrs. Brown. So I finished the package, edited it down, put the sound effects on it, did a whole lot, and presented it to this guy for his afternoon show. So he rang me about a week later, and he said to me, listen, he said, uh, I've played it for them here, for the management here in uh, the National Station, and they they won't let me run it. It's going to, the intention was it was to go at a half hour till 25 to 5. And he said, they won't let me run it because she says arse. And we can't have arse at half hour in the, in the day. Well, I said, listen, thanks very much for trying. Anyway, appreciate it. And that was that. <clears throat> so it must have been three or four months later. He rang me and said, uh, Brennan, just, uh, my producer's going on holidays. And they've told me to produce the show myself. I said, that's great. So what does that mean? He said, I'm going to run the 10 episodes. I'm producing it for two weeks. I said, good for you. So we ran the... Uh, First couple of episodes. I remember how thrilled we were. We were listening in the van. We were on the way to a gig. And I wasn't getting paid. They weren't paying me for it. But what they were doing was they were saying at the start of the episode and at the end of the episode, Mrs. Brown's Boys is a Brendan O'Carroll production and you can see Brendan tonight at Maudy Max in Mallow. Um, so I was getting a, a good plug out of it. And we were seeing it at the door. Uh, you know, at, 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 we were getting a few, a few extra punters at the door. So it was working that way. So by the Thursday, by the Wednesday, I got a phone call from Bill O'Donovan, who was the head of 2FM, the radio station, RTU 2FM, to come into the office. So I thought, I'm in big trouble here now. So I arrived in the office and he said to me, listen, he said, uh, I love it. But, he said, we've no money for drama. We don't have a drama budget. The drama budget is with RTE 1, the main station. So he said, I want it, but I've no money. I said, well, I can get loads of gigs like that. Thanks very much. Uh, he said... I have an idea. He said, what if I pay in T-shirts? I said, what? He said, what if I pay in T-shirts? What if I pay you, say, 200 T-shirts a week? And we put Mrs. Brown's boys on them with the, with the 2FM logo, and you can sell them at your gig for a fiver gig, and you get a grand out of it. I said, oh, okay. So I did it, and they paid me in T-shirts. <laughs> it was supposed to run for, I think, eight weeks, and it ran for two and a half years. And it just, I didn't really, I had no idea how popular it was. I really didn't have any idea that, it, I thought it was a Dublin story, that the audience in Dublin would get it, etc. But it got so popular. And I'm telling you no lie, um, at half four in Dublin, you couldn't get a taxi. The taxi just all pulled in, stopped, on with the radio. Hairdressers turned off the hairdryers, everything, up on with the radio. Prisoners in, in, in Wheatfield Prison asked to be locked up at half four because they'd, the radio piped into their cells and they wanted to listen to Mrs. Brown's boys. And we were getting stories like that from all over the country. Newspapers, you stopped the presses at half four till 25 to five uh, for Mrs. Brown. And it just became absolutely, um, hugely popular. What, 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 why did you stop the radio? I was knackered. 
I was walking around with a pencil in my hand all the time. If I went for a meeting with you during that time, and we sat to have a sat down to have a coffee, we had a meeting about say a radio show or whatever. If you wanted to go to the toilet, I'd be delighted because as soon as you went out, I'd be out with a pen and I'd be writing other stuff down. I just had to keep writing all the time. I went on holidays and I spent my entire holidays writing, writing. It was just non-stop writing. I know it sounds, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it was four hundred and thirty-five episodes in it. That's a lot of writing. And uh, I've got to ask. I'm sure everybody out there wants to know what was the most you made on t-shirts in one night. Rory gave away a T-shirt for a pound one night, but I don't know if you want. I don't know if you want to no, hear, that don't hear that story. Story, I don't know not. if you want to hear that story. Some guy came up and said, uh, "Stop, stop, stop, stop." I'd love to buy a T-shirt, no, no, stop, but I stop, only have a pound. Stop, stop. So Rory said, "I'm sure we can come to some arrangement." I don't know if it was that or not, but it was certainly a, it was a cheap T-shirt. I know that. Uh, we have a lovely email here. Um, excuse me, I can't. Excuse me, the email says. Oh, sorry. I can't understand a word he's saying. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I've never had one of them before. <laughs> That's a first. How many How many times have you done this show? About 4,000. Yeah, but I do... That's that I do, one you listen to. But I do, I, do, I do speak fast. Yeah. I do. Yeah, but that's... It's, I understand every word you say. Mrs Brown's the one I don't understand. <laughs> she's a bit of a cow sometimes, isn't she? She is, but she's got a heart of gold. Right, so we've got the T-shirts and we just found out what that was all about. So very nice. I'll get me quid back in a minute. And um, <laughs> so you, you stopped because you were knackered. Yeah. But And you had no idea how big Mrs Brown was No, becoming. really, really. Honestly, got it. I had no idea. There was a, a, and I, I kind of found out uh, there's a huge show in Ireland called The Late Late Show. Yeah, and it was presented by Gay Bourne. And yep. it, it was iconic. And if Gay, you know, there's an old saying. You know, he did the show for 22 years, and there's an old saying in Ireland that there was no sex in Ireland until Gay Bourne came along. I mean, he just had it was just a, an iconic show, and it changed society in Ireland very much. He had people on talking about all kinds of things, and it, it, their their motto was <clears throat> their motto was that it started on the Late Late Show. That that was their and that was their, their jingle. It started on the Late Late Show. So. I got invited to do the Late Late Show. No, they booked me a year in advance. Uh, but the rule is that if they ask you, if they book you, and you do any television between the time they book you and the time they want you, you won't be on the show. What? Very, very, they're very, selfish. they're very precious. No, but they, it's, it has to start on the Late Late Show. Right. So I was, I waited a year. And it, anyway, to do it, came the night to do it. And I, that's the night I realised, kind of realised, that it had caught on because the, it was a live audience and Gay came on uh, I was coming on next I was ready to go on standing back I was really nervous I was actually as, as Mrs Brown no no, no just as Brendan Carroll just Brendan. Uh, and he, he he came on alright let's see what we have for you now coming up next we have a young man all the way from Fingers in Dublin you may not have heard of him uh, before but you will be hearing of him he's going to be a huge star audience is dead no reaction and he said you probably know him as the creator and the voice of Mrs. Brown and the audience start clapping. And I realised, God, they know Mrs. Brown. And it was that's the first night I kind of realised that it was... Uh, when did the dress come it was in? Big. When was the first time? And, and how did you pick it? And was after, it after, after, games or? That Late Late Show was a huge, huge move for me because the night before that Late Late Show, I gigged for 350 quid. And the Monday night after, I gigged for three and a half thousand. It was like that. It yeah. just became huge. And I became very, very popular. And if I wrote out my shopping list and put it on the stage, it was a hit. And you, you, I started to think I was invincible. I couldn't do anything wrong. 
I was absolutely, I could walk on water. So, how old were you? Oh, I was very, I started very late. I was 25. I was 25. So, I decided I was going to make a movie. And because uh, at this stage, I'd written a play, huge hit, broke the box up as records, uh, written three books, all number one sellers. I mean, I just could do nothing wrong. And I decided I'd make a movie of a, of a, a book I wrote called Sparrow's Trap. And wrote the screenplay and, and so I'd make the movie ourselves. And the night before we start, two nights before we start shooting, I lost my distributor. Now, basically what that means is when you lose your distributor, the way it works in the movie business is your distributor gives a letter of guarantee for the amount of sin- screens that's going to be put on and estimates what it will take in. Based on that, you draw down the loan from the bank or from your investors based on the amount of money that it'll bring in. So the distributor thinks it's going to bring in $5 million you can draw it down two and a half. Usually five million, maybe one and one and three quarters. It's about three times a third of what you can take in at the distribution desk, at the, at the distribution outlet. So I lost my distributor, so which meant I lost my finance. Basically, that's what it meant. And how far gone were you? Two days before shooting. Oh, I brought, I, the assistant director I wanted, I, I had to bring him out from Romania. He was a nurse guy, but I wanted him and I talked to him and I had people coming from everywhere, a huge crew, everything ready to go. No money. Now, I'm a working class lad, and there's a little bit of working class pride that was involved in this, plus a little bit of ego. As I said, I thought I could walk on water. I kept going, and I made a movie, and it cost 2.2 million, and I put in 1 million of that myself, which was everything I had. It broke me, completely, absolutely broke me. Plus, I borrowed a million and a half that I could never, I didn't think I'd ever repay back. Um, I never released a movie. I never, ever release it. <clears throat> it's edited, it's sitting on my shelf at home, and very few people have seen it, actually. Why? It took me nearly five years to pay off that one and a half million. And only actually paid off, last March, 12 months, I paid off the last of it. And I didn't feel it was my movie until I paid off everybody. Now, the funny thing is, and this is the truth of God, at that time, movie people advising me said to me, look, just fold the company, it's a limited company. <clears throat> sell the movie to yourself for a pound and let the creditors argue over the pound. But that's not me. Um, everybody got paid. I paid every penny uh, to everybody. In fact, we worked for about five years, literally just drawn down a small wage just to keep ourselves going to pay off the debts. And they paid off. And I never felt it was my movie until it was paid off. And now it's paid off. It is my movie. And then there was no... It's now... It's not an opportune, it wasn't an opportune time to release the movie. But funny enough, now that the TV series is going out, a lot of TV companies are now interested in buying the movie, putting it on telly, etc. So I might get me mo- some of my money back on that. <clears throat> but it wiped me. And it wiped me, like, really bad. I, I got I had no money. Because I, it, doing the movie takes a good year out of your life. So it took a good year out of my life. No bookings, no money, no gigs. And uh, it was just a dreadful, dreadful time. And... Again, I'm very lucky for some of the people who've come in and out of my life. Um, Rory rang me to say that John Costigan, um, who's the manager of the uh, Olympia Theatre, or the Gaiety Theatre, wanted to meet with me for a coffee. Now, I'm at my lowest ebb here. I have no dosh. I just don't feel funny either. And I have no gigs. So I went and met him for a coffee. And Dennis Desmond, who's a very, very big promoter, MCD in, in Ireland. And Dennis is from Cork. Straight talking, hard as a rock, but I think he's a great guy. Um, he had he what he was trying to do was get word to me that he had three weeks free in the Gaiety Theatre available, and he wanted me to scribble up something. Is what the way he put it 
for the to pull in for the three weeks. And I said, oh, John, I said, look, tell him thanks very much, but I can't. I just don't feel funny. I really don't. And I can't think of anything that I would do to, 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 to fill the three weeks. Plus, any time I've worked with Dennis, I always work on a joint production basis. So he puts in half the dosh, I put in half the dosh, and we split the, the production. My half would have been 70 grand. And I didn't have I didn't have a pot to piss in. So I said, look, I've also, I haven't got the money. And he said to me, he said he'll lend you the money. Um, and he'll take it out of what he believes will be a, uh, a best-selling hit. So I said, right, well, leave it with me. So I went home and I thought, I don't know what to write. And I thought, you know what, I, why don't I do a play of Mrs. Brown? A Mrs. Brown stage play. And play Mrs. Brown myself. So what I did was, I got a, a makeup artist friend of mine, Tom McGotchy, Tom McInerney, great, great makeup artist. And I got him to do me up as Mrs. Brown, but don't show me a mirror. Do me up without me doing it in bits. And when, tell me, you're finished now. And I wanted him to do me up as what he thought Mrs. Brown would look like based on what he's heard in the radio. And then when he finished, I look in the mirror, and if I didn't believe it, I wasn't doing it. <clears throat> And when I looked in the mirror, I went, it's Mrs. Brown. So we did... Can you remember how you just felt when you looked in that mirror? I was st stunned. Because he didn't seem to have done too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? It kind of upset me a bit. He didn't seem to have put on too much makeup. And he was on. you're doing them. And really? And I turned around, oh, to the God. It's me, it's me nanny. Um, so we, we, we put on the, on the play, hoping to get me 70 grand back, you know? And we took in 1.4 million. And um, after costs, I paid the 70 grand, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I managed to pay off a good few debts out of it. So uh, we ran for, I don't know, eight weeks in the end. It was a, it was a yeah. good long run, yeah. It was much longer than normal runs. And then we, took, we opened it in Cork to, to try it out. And I knew in Cork it was a hit because we opened it in Cork. We were only doing the um, six nights, Monday to Saturday. And by Wednesday, the whole place was sold out. And they asked us, would we add on Thursday or uh, Sunday? Uh, which we did, <clears throat> and it sold out in an hour. <clears throat> so uh, all the signs were well, and it was good to be back working. And it was, you know, what it was good to be back. Well, getting new confidence. I feel a bit of success. It really was. It was so what really, made, really what, good. What made you think of coming to England? Ireland's very small, and I don't care how funny you think you are. If you're going around the same circuit all the time, people are entitled to get a pen in their ass with you. No matter how funny you think you are, and even no matter how funny you are, people are entitled to go. Do you know what? Yeah, but I just have enough of them. So I needed to spread my wings. I needed to get new territories. I didn't want to go to London. I didn't want. To, I don't. I never did the comedy clubs, um, and I didn't want to get into that circuit where you've got twenty minutes to do your gig, and because it takes me twenty minutes to say hello. So I didn't want to do that. Um, so I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it to uh, Liverpool, and I didn't come to the uh, empire, the empire, or the uh, Royal the Royal Court. I went to the Neptune. It was the first place we played. And we did three weeks in it, and they asked us to do another 12 weeks, and we couldn't do it. I couldn't do the 12 weeks. So I went to the, the Neptune, and I thought, that's great. I talked to a guy in Glasgow, Ian, um, what's his name? Ian Gordon. Ian Gordon in Glasgow. I had talked him in to give me three weeks there with no rent in the pavilion, based on the share of the profits, that he would share the profits. Um, he'd also front the advertising, because again, even though we did well in Dublin, <coughs> once I paid off debts, there was no money left. Um, so... We were going from Liverpool up to Glasgow. And just so people understand, what you're looking for to keep a momentum on a show is from the moment you open, 
Pre-sales, you're looking for, you know, decent pre-sales based on your advertising. But from the moment it opens, about five grand sales a day you're looking for to keep you, to keep you above, uh, above water. And we opened on, we actually did a two-for-one on the Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. No, we did two, two for When you opened in Newcastle? No, in, 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 in Glasgow. Yeah, in we did two for one to try and get word of mouth yeah. uh, going. And, and the tickets were only 10 quid at the time. Yeah, I think the yeah. Saturday night was 12 and 10 for the... And on the Wednesday, he rang me and said to me, we just did 20 grand today at the box office. This has taken off. And thank God, it yeah. just it just took off. Well, the first night you played in Liverpool, was it full? Or was that papered the first night? Uh, <clears throat> we papered the first night, but the Neptune was well, the Neptune was tiny. So it was easy enough because we'd had an audio. We'd come over here with the with the course and we did well with the course. So we, we got a small audience there anyway. The big test was coming back to do the Royal Court. I mean, that was an 1800-seater, and you knew you were going to be under pressure. Uh, and the first night, and I remember this well, the first night we opened in the Royal Court, there was 80 people at the gig. But I gave them a show they would never forget. Because mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing challenges me, and I love that. I rose well. And we gave them a rollicking good night. But by the second Saturday, <clears throat> it was sold out. Yeah. You know that uh, Paul O'Grady, when he crossed over to mainstream, Neptune was the first one. Didn't know that. Uh, no. First, first place. He couldn't put bombs on seats. He couldn't get anybody to. Couldn't get uh, this morning interested in him. Nobody. I. He did my show like you do, mm. and it was sold out. Fantastic. And that's why he always thanks me for that. Well, uh, I remember coming down to you for, when I was doing when I started doing the Royal Court, and I did an interview with you. And you, you didn't know me from Adam, but you were very generous to me. Uh, with your time, especially because you get radio interviews, and sometimes you get four or five minutes. And you gave me about an hour. And we talked about all kinds of things, not just the show. Uh, and we talked about the business in general. But it certainly, um, it certainly oiled the wheels for us, big time. And every time, that's why every time we come back, we still come here. But there's another side to Brendan. Before we talk about television, <laughs> this is what I love about Brendan. And we're going to talk about the series. But before we do, because he's got it, I and mean, we had the most incredible discussion on smoking. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're now going to have the most incredible discussion. And the microphone is all yours. On the banking system in Ireland, because I sent a text to, uh, I don't think you've got mine, but I sent one to Louis at Walsh saying that you and Brendan O'Carroll should come on, bail the government out, the money you two have got. <laughs> on a serious Pete, note, if I had your mics, money, I'd born mine. The mic's all yours. Uh, well, there's, there's very little to say. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a national disgrace. It's an embarrassment. Um, it's, it's typical. What's going on right now? We the, the bailout is the bailout's been brought in by Europe, so we were put into trouble by by bankers who we didn't elect. Uh, the economy was brought down, and now we're being bailed out by the IMF who we didn't elect. So it's the end of democracy in Ireland. The people who are both getting us into trouble and getting us out of trouble, none of them are elected, and the people we have elected. Um, Made a town halls of it. I mean, they really have. They've made a complete. Tell, tell me what the atmosphere is like over there. Very down, very dour. Anybody who can get out of the country will. Um, and those who can't are in, are in big trouble. I mean, the irony, the ironies of it are this. In order to save the banks, the government are giving them money. In order to get that money, the government are taxing the people. And when the people's taxes going to bail out the banks, the banks are going to those people and putting them out of their houses. Where's the, where's the justice in that? So we'd bail the banks out, but 
you miss the payment on your mortgage and you're gone. Out of your house. It's it's an absolute it's it's a moral dilemma for any right minded person and, and it's a in when some in some ways it's a pity um that this T V series is coming along when it has come along because it ha- if it hadn't come along or if it had happened earlier, I'd be very much involved in, in the political end of things and, and I think it's time right now for a new party in Ireland, a social justice party that will take take on the professional politicians. It's because in- interesting what you say about the banks. This is a situation virtually in every country now, and not one banker has been brought to task over it. When you think that a group of <clears> men in this world have nearly brought the world to its knees. Well, there's more than 18 have been put in prison in America. Are they? Mm-hmm. Right. Nobody's been put in prison in Ireland. Nobody's been even t- taken to task in Ireland. We have one guy... Without mentioning his name. Uh, without mentioning... Well, it's, it's, public, it's public knowledge anyway. Um, it's in the public domain. He was the head of a bank. He headed off to America. He took a, a huge loan. I mean, talk about like 70 million loan from his own bank. And when they'd be doing the banks, when they would be doing the accounts at the end of the year, he had an arrangement with another bank who would loan him the 70 million to put into the account so it didn't show up in the bank's accounts. And then the day after the end of the year, he'd give it back to them. And, uh, and he, he went to America and um, they're having an investigation into it. Uh, 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 a parliament uh, have set up a committee to investigate it and they said we'd like to come back and give evidence. He went, nah. <laughs> There's nothing they can do about it. Are people angry about the euro? No, I don't think so. Listen, we, we went in eyes wide open to the euro. Um, you, you know, you, there's talk at the moment about lack of, so, you know, losing our sovereignty, etc. So we lost our sovereignty the moment we joined the EEC. The, the truth of it is, um, we're part of a big group now. And I'm quite proud to be a European. Uh, you know, I know a lot of British people go, no, no, England first, you know, keep the pound. You know, keep, well, that's entirely up to you. But for me, I'm very proud to be a European. I like being part of a group uh, and if there was the United States of Europe I wouldn't be that, that upset about it I really wouldn't <clears throat> so we went in with our eyes open it did us the world of good um, Europe has done nothing but good for Ireland uh, joining the E the, the Euro now today is obviously is a bad thing because we can't devalue if we were still in the punt we could devalue our pound and that would help get us out of trouble rather than it would it would help rectify things, but we can't do that because we don't own the euro. If we devalue the euro, we devalue it for everybody right across the world. The Germans won't let that, or the French won't let that happen. And my my worry is that this is the start of the trickle uh, of the, of a domino effect. It's very very likely that Portugal will be next, and that Spain will be after that. Now, if that happens, the euro is smashed. We're in big trouble right across Europe, and if Europe is in trouble, um, the pound is in trouble. <coughs> Because we all have to stand together. Um, so that would be one of my worries. But, on, I mean, on the whole, this, this fallacy that it's a worldwide thing and that it's, you know, it's not. It's not. No, it's not. <clears throat> We've cut 12,500 civil servants in the last two years in Ireland. And we still have a civil service. So why did we have those 12,500 in the first place? We've cut... They're not talking. They're now talking about cutting. Is it sixteen billion over the next three years? Yeah. Sixteen billion off the budget in the next three years. Well, if we can cut that sixteen billion off in three years, why was it there in the first place? And nobody is taking that bit to task. What's the benefit <clears throat> system like in Dublin? 
Not as good as here. Uh, in some cases, not as good as here. Um, I know there's a weekly children's allowance here. We get a monthly children's allowance. Um, but it's but it's not bad, uh, you know. It's it, it's not a disincentive to work. One of the things that is, you see, you've got medical care here that's free all the time. Our medical care is only free if you're poor, or if you're uh, unemployed. So it's called the, the the blue card. So when you sign on the dole, I think at twelve weeks on the dole, you get a blue card, which gives you free medical, uh, doctor's fees for any of your kids or yourself, and does uh, it do prescriptions as well? Yeah, I think it's prescriptions. You get free free prescriptions as well. If you're below a certain income level, you can apply for that. That's the disincentive to work. The disincentive to work is that if you're getting 280 quid on the dole or 290 euro on the dole and you get a job for 350 euro, you won't take it. And the reason you won't take it is not because there's not enough of a bonus, it's because you lose your medical card. So the answer there would be to let people say, listen, for three years after you get a job, you can hang on to your medical card. And there's little things like that. To get. It's not a huge jump um, we've unleashed our four-year plan today. Or well, not we have, but the government have unleashed our four-year plan today. And they're making, as far as I'd be concerned, basic, basic mistakes. <clears throat> they're putting VAT up. Which they're doing with us, 20%. Why? <laughs> goes up in January. The most successful airline financially at the moment, not customer service-wise, but financially is Ryanair. Ryanair are turning over and making more profit than any other airline in the world. And yet the fares are only 14 quid or 6 quid or 9 quid or 29 quid. So Ryanair proves something. That's an elementary truth in economics. The less you charge, the more you sell. We, if you had a tax, ba- you've, you have a tax bracket. What's the highest tax bracket in, in the UK? 50%. 50%. I'll guarantee you, because it's the same in Ireland. In, in not, it's not the same, but the top three earners in Ireland last year, and I'm talking about multi-millionaires, didn't pay one penny tax. Not one penny. Do you know why? Because they've got tax lawyers and tax accountants that are experts at moving that money around to make sure that tax is... is Which is, is what happens in England with some of the big boys that own some of the big companies. Well, here's one for you. Drop it to 20 pence in the pound. Drop the tax to 20%. At 20%, it's not worth their while hiring lawyers again. and tax accountants to move it around. If they're sure they're going to get 80 pence out of every pound, they'd pay the 20p. So instead of the lawyers getting it and the accountants getting it, the government gets it. What we need to do in Ireland is we need to have a level tax bracket right across the board. 20% tax right across the board. But introduce a 7% transaction tax. Doesn't matter what you buy. Doesn't matter where you buy it. There's 7% tax on it. The benefits of that are this. If you were going on an average wage, you go in to buy a TV, you'd buy a nice HD TV for maybe 450 quid. But if you're a rich guy, you'd buy a Bang & Olufsen TV with a surround sound system that'll cost you five grand. He pays the most tax. He who spends more, pays more. It's exactly the same as I've been saying it for many, many years. There should be no road tax in Ireland. There should be only penny put on the on, on petrol. There's people who only use their cars on a Sunday and they're paying a year's road tax. Why did you put it on the petrol? Whoever uses the most petrol pays the most tax. Th- that's fair. Well, that's the way it should be. 20% in the pound, but I would take away all tax-free allowances. There's no allowances. But here's the promise. 80 pence of every pound you make is yours. 20 pence goes to the government. Another problem that we have in Ireland is not so much that we're also short of money, but we're short of cash flow. If we have a deficit in the budget and we predict a deficit, we have to borrow that deficit before we collect it. So we know we're going to collect 9 billion next year in tax. We budget on that basis. 
but we borrowed the money up front, we front loaded, and then when we collect the tax, we pay off the loan. What we need is cash flow. If you had a transaction tax, with the likes of Lidl and Aldi and Tesco's and all the supermarkets who deal in the cash business, they can pay it on a fortnightly basis. If you're taking that kind of tax in on a fortnightly basis, it reduces the amount of interest you pay and it reduces the amount you have to borrow. All of those things need to be done. A single tax bracket would really, really help the economy, but there'd be a lot of job losses. Because the tax system, I'm sure it's the same in the UK, but the tax system in Ireland is so complex and complicated that you need thousands of people to administer it. We're completely overstaffed on, the, on, 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 the, on services. It, it takes the wages, it takes the tax from three working man's wages to keep one prisoner in prison. That's not right. So there's, there needs to be genuine and absolute reform. We have more, our prime minister is the highest paid prime minister in Europe. And in fact, our prime minister earns more than the president of the United States of America. No wonder he doesn't want to give up his job. Well, the, the problem with the the problem with full time politicians that we have in Ireland is that they immediately start looking to hold onto their seat the day after they're elected. Some of them, I'm sure, went in with genuine willingness to try and make a difference in the world, but with the whip system, uh, your opinion doesn't really matter. If you're a backbencher, your opinion doesn't really matter. If you're an independent, you really are a waste of, and I don't mean it to be detrimentally independent because I know they're passionate, but it's a waste of a, yeah. of a vote. Um, because the party system makes sure that if the Fianna Fáil cabinet decide they want to pass something, the rest of the party are told to vote for it. And that's it. And you don't vote against the whip. So, unless, while you have the party whip and while you have that party system, we also have 269 seats um, for country our size. We only have 4 million people. There's 32 counties in Ireland, six which are at the moment being administered by the United Kingdom, or actually being self-administered themselves. In the North. So that leaves us 26 counties in the Republic of Ireland. There's absolutely no reason why 52 um, representatives couldn't do that. Two from every county would be plenty to run this country. And then let local government, the, the, the councillors, let them take, give them a budget, let them take on the, the, the responsibility of their own counties. There's an absolute reform needed from top to bottom, but it can be done. The problem with Ireland at the moment is that we don't lack the will. We've been, we've had famine. We've had worse than this. We've had better, worse recessions than this. And we've always come through. We're a strong, intelligent, well-educated, young and passionate race. And we will work our way out of things if we're led. Our problem right now is a complete absence of leadership. People walking around with their heads up their arse. And all the people want just a little bit of direction. You know what? If you're a leader in Ireland and you do things wrong, they don't care as long as you try and do something. And they're not trying to do anything. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I just think the man is an amazing man, along with everybody else and the team. Uh, and if you've never seen Mrs. Brown, I would suggest you went because it is the most uplifting, funny, cheeky, rudish, great laugh entertainment you could ever see. I just love it to death. And the TV series is starting in January. Liverpool's biggest after-hours talk show, Late Night City, with Pete Price on Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9.